0: You are now listening to the Intersection Victoria.com podcast. A place where faith meets facts. A podcast made for the thinking Christian and the skeptic. I believe in a God who holds the heavens and the earth in existence. I believe that on the basis of rational evidence. Frederick Hoyle both said this, there is no way to explain the origin of life. And I'm quoting Hoyle now in an earthbound explanation. Hello, nerds, earthlings, either one. Now, the nerd factor in this video is fairly high, so the boredom factor might be high as well. It's not my most exciting video, but I want to go over the history of the university. Now, the term university didn't exist until uh, the Italian university of Bologna, 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 in 1088 current era, or AD as we used to call it. But institutions of learning have been around since as long as we've recorded history. So the Sumerian culture is the oldest recorded culture, and they had an institute for scribes, and that was 3,500 years ago. So we know that you go forward in time to the Egyptian culture, Babylonian, Greco-Roman, etc., you have some form of institutionalized uh, learning. Now, the famous painting by Raphael during the Renaissance period, uh, it's a painting known as, and this was in the 1500s, the 16th century, It's a painting known as the School of Athens, and it depicts the greatest thinkers of Greco-Roman lore, and that's Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, etc., Pythagoras. Now, they were around before the time of Christ, so in the B.C. or B.C.E. era, and they did not have an actual school, so there was no such thing as the School of Athens. But this painting simply represents the four pillars of Greek thought, and that's logic or philosophy, poetry and music, so culture, and then theology, and finally law. And that was the comprehensive system the Greeks used to describe all of reality. Now in 400 AD, or current era, in Nalanda, India, an institute for learning, where the National Institute for Learning was founded. And it lasted for 800 years before it was destroyed in 1200. So it's one of the longest standing universities in history. After the Muslim world overtook Northern Africa and pushed out the what was then the Christianized Roman Empire out of Northern Africa, the Moroccan Institute of Learning was put up in the 9th century, so the 800s uh, current era or AD. Now, skip forward a little bit and now you see the explosion and the appearance of what's become the phenomenon of the university. And it was sort of a climactic push towards, ever since Christianity was made legal by Constantine in the 300s AD, Christianity had become to formalize institutions within Europe. And it's what is credited as helping Europe go from a barbaric Roman Empire to the modern European world that we know of today. In 1088 AD, the first ever university was dubbed exactly that. And in, in Latin it just draws from the word universal, which means all scholars coming together under one roof. So before they were sort of piecemeal free thinkers, kind of all over the map. Now they had a place to go play together. Another way the word university has been used in, in, in Christian perspective is that it presents the term unity of diversity university now why would they use that term well if you look at the diverse subjects taught in a university you've got math in one department then you've got psychology in another one you've got law in another one you've got biology taught somewhere else if a university is what it's supposed to be which is the description of reality from all different angles then it should describe the same reality, if it has the correct worldview. So, for example, Christians saw theology, which they call the queen of all sciences, as what put a a logical capstone on all the diverse subjects that you can study in a university setting. So, to make it more plain, if I study mathematics in one corner of the university, I'm spending all day and all month and all year, my whole degree, learning about an abstract concept known as math that numbers do not exist in space and time they are what Plato and Socrates would have said fragments of the immaterial metaphysical or supernatural mind so I can peruse the world of numbers but it's not I'm not perusing the world itself like I would in biology or chemistry I'm using and and working with an abstract realm now in an atheistic realm Christians would say that makes no sense If atheism is correct, if materialism is all there is, then there should not be such a thing as an abstract realm of numbers or forms or logic. So then I go over to the biology department and I study DNA, for example. Uh, Obviously that didn't exist back in the beginning of universities in Europe, but I'm using a modern example to bring the point home. So I go and study DNA. I'm looking at what Bill Gates called computer language. And, and Richard Dawkins even described it as, as such. It's computer like knowledge. Information systems is what our DNA is it's language. And it's then read and copied and manufactured into proteins by micro machines inside of ourselves. So then I look at that and I go, gee, that doesn't seem to support materialism, at least not random, purposeless materialism. How could we get this type of information? You can't get information from matter, you get information from mind. So I'm looking at biology, seems to point to a theistic worldview. let's say, I'm just making an argument, and then I go to math class and I'm perusing an abstract field of numbers and concepts and logic. And then I go to psychology class and I read about how if a human does not have purpose, they tend to commit suicide. So there's a small example of how could you make all of those, how could you thread in logical format all of those diverse views that are real fields of knowledge, unless you put a theistic framework on top of that university. And materialistic culture cannot, by definition, make sense of human's thirst for purpose or meaning. And it certainly cannot describe that DNA, our base biological reality, is an information system surrounded by micro-machinery, like a factory, a car factory. That's the basic So That's why the term university to the Christian mind has meant the unity of diversity which can only be logically threaded together through Christian worldview or a theistic worldview. So then after the Bologna, Italy university was erected, then you have across the pond you've got the uh, Oxford University in, in England in 1096, then you have in Spain the University of Salamanca in 1134, and then 1160 comes the University of Paris. So you're starting to see the Christian tradition of formalizing Christian thought in a singular institute start to pop up more and more. And that's sort of the history of the big bang of our Christian institution known as the university, which is now a worldwide phenomenon. Now in the 1200s, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who's kind of dubbed now as the father, one of the fathers of the modern scientific revolution. Now he was a Dominican friar, he was Italian, but he was also a scientist. He was a botanist, a naturalist, under Aquinas, where the Christian University began to dedicate itself at looking downwards at nature to see how it ticked. Most cultures before then had had been content with looking at the stars, tracking the stars' movements in space, which we now call astronomy, and that was more or less basic math and basic astronomical observations was the roof of all civilizations science up until that point. And that's true of China, which had thousands of years of a standing culture before European culture was ever established, and they never went past some of the basics. Uh, Aztec culture in South America, same thing. Although, interestingly enough, both the Romans and the Aztec came up with a 365-day calendar independently of each other. So clearly they were good at observational math of the stars and the movement of the heavens. But they always seem to hit a roof they didn't really crack the code of nature until the christianized university of the middle renaissance and enlightenment era now the question is why the christian european university system uh to crack the code now part of that is is obviously going to be time when you're standing on the shoulders of thousands of years of other humans work you're going to be propelled forward But philosophers of science and history uh, have also said that there was a key difference between the the Judeo-Christians' view of the world or the universe and those of the cultures that had come before it. For example, if you look at Norse mythology or Greek mythology or Sumerian Babylonian mythology, Aborigine mythology in Australia, uh, North American indigenous tribes, creation myths and worldviews, there is a very common thread amongst all of them and that is that they saw the natural world as essentially at the whims of the moods of the gods. So if the gods change their mind about something, nature changes with it. It's almost like nature's is itself just a dream element wafting off the skulls and minds of god or goddesses or gods or titans or whatever. There was a unique difference in Christian theism which is also bled into Muslim theism and the notion in the old testament when it talks about nature in the world and creation is was that creation itself or nature was separate from god not an extension of him or her or them but clearly a separate mechanism that wa- worked not on moods or supernatural whim but on laws wisdom and rules that's embedded in the old testament scriptures and it bled over into christian thought on top of that we believed as judeo-christians that our minds were made like that of the Creator, in the image of the Creator. So we thought like the Creator and the Creator had created a world that was understandable, but it worked on mechanism that could be seen and did not change. An analogy I like to use is as modern-day people we know what a video game is. So if I'm playing a video game I understand inherently that this game was created by somebody like me and it was created so that I can go from A to B and pass the level onto the next. So no matter how hard I find a level, I'm likely to keep trying to crack the code of that level until I get to the next. And that's how Christians in Europe saw nature. We must be able to understand how it works, and it has to work along a mechanical, repeatable, observable fashion. So we wanted to pass the video game, so to speak, of understanding scientifically how things worked. And that's precisely what happened. Now, obviously, most during a, a time when culture in Europe was overwhelmingly dominated by the church, almost everybody who was a, who was a who's who of the think anybody who was a thinker that worked officially for the church or the university would have to at least pay lip service to claiming to be Christian. But I took a list of just those who actually showed some sort of moxie towards Christianity. So in other words, people who did a lot of work, extra work for the church or a lot of extra writings, on Christian principles, theology, and thought. People who had evidence of truly believing Christianity. And of that group I came up with a small list of who's who's that Christians did build the scientific revolution in the medieval renaissance and enlightenment era. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish mathematician and astronomer. He really revolutionized our view of the solar system. He came up with heliocentrism and at the time he was heavily involved in church and he did sort of ferment or bring to the surface the the view of the solar system which we carry to this day. Johannes Kepler was a German astronomer, and he was somebody who helped track the motion of the planets in a more detailed and unprecedented way. And interestingly enough, in an address he made to his university, he said, quote-unquote, "...those laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts." So here you're seeing him have the view of nature that had propelled the Christian scientific revolution of the medieval era in Europe, the view that we could think like God, and therefore we could understand things that the Creator had done in a way that other animals can't. Now, René Descartes is another bigwig. He he advanced geometry, and he helped propel Enlightenment-era scientific revolution. That's sort of how he's known. Blaise Pascal was a boy genius who turned into a heavyweight in the math and physics world. As a matter of fact, we credit him with three different things. Pascal's Law, which is a study on fluid pressures. As a matter of fact, Pascal is a fluid pressure unit to this day. Uh, Pascal's Theorem, which is a mathematical theorem. And finally, and probably most famously, is Pascal's Wager, which is a theological argument which we'll make a video on uh, down the road. Now, Robert Boyle, who lived in the 1600s and published the book Skeptical Chemist, and he effectively put an end to uh, alchemy and transformed it into modern chemistry, from which we get our medicine, manufacturing, alloys, and all the wonders of the modern science of chemistry. Isaac Newton needs no introduction. Little do people know that he actually, volume-wise, wrote more on theology than he did on science. He was a devout Christian theologian. That brings us up to the end of the Enlightenment era. Now we move past into the modern era, so you look at the 1800s. Gregor Mandel, a, a German botanist who is the, known as the father of modern genetics. In fact, his letters were unopened and in Darwin's desk and found there after Darwin died. Louis Pasteur was one of the founding fathers of microbiology. Up until the 1800s, we had no, idea what, we had no germ theory. We didn't know that microorganisms, whether viral or bacterial, uh, were the cause of disease. And he helped to... F- to found that, and that's where we get the term pasteurized milk. He would boil milk before bottling it, and that would make it less likely to poison somebody. Lord Kelvin, after whom we get the temperature measurement of kelvins, was a an engineer and a devout believer. Uh, matter of fact, a quote he gave to his university class is as timely today as it was a hundred some odd years ago. And this was to, he was dispelling the, the growing notion during the Enlightenment and modern era, the growing notion that Our ability to understand nature meant there was no creator. Which again would have been a strange thought up until about 100 years ago. We're really seeing a cultural shift and not a logical reality come into play when we get the notion in our minds that somehow the belief that this world is ordered and structured, intelligent being would make us less likely to pursue an understanding of it. So Lord Kelvin said... I have long felt that there was a general impression in the non-scientific world that science believes it has discovered ways of explaining all the facts of nature without adopting any definite belief in a creator. I have never doubted that that impression was utterly groundless. Now in the 20th century, and by that I mean from 1901 to the year 2000, uh, a majority of Nobel laureates, Nobel Prize winners, were religious and mostly Christian. For example, 65.4% of Nobel Prize winners in the last century were Christian. 20% practiced Judaism or believed in Judaism. That makes 85% of Nobel laureates Judeo-Christian. And only 10.5% were either atheist or agnostic. Now, as well, a 2009 Pew Research Poll of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, which is the largest international as much as it's called american it's the largest international body of professional scientists so if you make your living in science whether you're a nasa engineer or physicist, physicist or a, a surgical a surgeon a, a medical doctor a math professor a college physics professor whatever a chemist for mcgillenorm if you're a professional scientist this is your largest international body uh, professional body now when they when they polled those people and this is back in 2009 uh, they came to find out what were the religious backgrounds of their professional scientists. And what they came up with was this pie chart. And as you can see, uh, 16% were Protestants or mainline Protestant, 4% Evangelical, 10% Catholic. So that makes a 30% chunk of professional scientists worldwide are Christian to this day. Now, if you add the 8% Jew Jewish population of scientists, you've got a 38% chunk that are Judeo-Christian. Other religions equals 10%, that means of the professional scientists living in our modern times, almost half of them, so 48% of them, uh, identify as religious in some form or fashion, mostly Judeo-Christian. And the, the rest of the categories are not actually atheistic. There's only one slice of the pie that's atheist, and that's 17%. Those who are committed materialists. The I don't know or nothing in particular, which is what agnosticism basically... Agnosticism means mean you claim not to know, that you don't have a final conclusion. So in that, I don't know or undecided category, you've got 35% of the, uh, but the biggest group is still those that are religious. That's an interesting fact. It doesn't mean that religion is true. It simply means, clearly, the sharper your mind is, does not mean that you become less religious. I think that is a fallacy. Common colloquialism in our culture, but I do not believe it stands up to scrutiny. So in a nutshell, the, my point is this. The university was birthed out of Christian minds for good reason and ultimately faith and science are not opposed. That is why as a Christian I am intellectually satisfied. What my heart resonates with when I'm in communion with God, my mind can be at peace with and rationalize fully when I study the world from any angle, whether it's biology or physics or math or history etc. So there you go. Thanks for if you followed me this far you are truly a nerd and I thank you for that. God bless. Thank you for joining us. Please visit our website and social media. Find us at intersectionvictoria.com. Goodbye.